Good day, my friends, and welcome to another moment. Yes, another Black History moment with Bo. And I hope today turns out to be a marvelous day for you. Because at the end of the day, it's not about what you have or even what you've accomplished. It's about who you've lifted up, who you've made better. It's about what you've given back. And we learned a long time ago that black people's pain is the world's entertainment. And we have a lot to do with that. Because the problem is that we are just educated enough to believe what we've been taught and not educated enough to question what we've been taught. So today I'm going to tell you about a great man, a great boxer, the first black heavyweight champion, Jack Johnson. On May the 24th, 2018, President Donald Trump formally pardoned the former U.S. boxer Jack Johnson. Trump did that? That's kind of hard to believe. The story of the Galveston giant was one of highs and lows. At its zenith, Johnson became the first African-American world heavyweight champion. At his nadir, Johnson found himself in prison, a victim in the era of Jim Crow laws and racial segregation. But who was he? Jack Johnson was the son of freed slaves. He was cocky and confident, a lover of fast car and faster women. The world-class boxer, there is no doubt that a racially motivated conviction in 1913 ruined his career. 100 years later, on April 17, 2013, the Senate voted to urge President Obama to pardon Jack Johnson. Now, this dude was born John Arthur Johnson on March the 31st, 1878 in Galveston, Texas, to slaves freed during the Civil War. And despite being poor, from childhood he was confident and driven. At 12, determined to leave Galveston for New York City, he was discovered beaten and thrown off the freight train he had jumped. A Huckleberry Finn-like, he jumped a boat headed for Key West and worked as a fisherman before working his passage as a cook on a freighter to New York. He returned home via Boston, where he worked in a stable, becoming a longshoreman back in Galveston at age 13. You see, back then, most of the dock workers fought and could earn extra money after he beat the toughest man in Galveston, Johnson's fighting reputation was established, as was his nickname, Lil Arthur. He turned pro on November the 1st, 1897, winning the Texas State middleweight title. And in early 1901, Johnson fought Joe Kroniski, an experienced but aging heavyweight in Galveston. Kroniski knocked Johnson out, but they were both arrested because prize fighting being illegal there at the time. 
Bell was set at an unaffordable $5,000 each, so the sheriff let both fighters go home at night so long as they returned to spar in the jail cell. Large crowds gathered to watch the sessions. Krowinski saw natural talent and determination in Johnson and taught him the nuances of defense, telling him a man who can move like you should never have to take a punch. After 23 days in jail, Bell was reduced to an affordable level and a grand jury refused to indict either man. The two would remain friends and Johnson later claimed that his success in boxing came from the coaching he received during that jail time. At 6'2", with a reach of 74 inches, Jack was making a name for himself on the black boxing circuit. And in 1903, now nicknamed the Galveston Giant, he took the unofficial World Colored Heavyweight Championship and by the end of 1906 had fought in 56 official fights, lost only two, and won the World Light Heavyweight Championship. My friends, I'm going to break this up right here for a minute to, to tell you. Now, this man was considered a giant at 6'2". So that goes to show you what the steroids and preservatives that are put into our food are doing to us. 6'10", 7 feet, that's a normal now. And you got to remember, first we are Africans. And there is only one tribe in Africa that reaches that height. Hell, the average cowboy was only about five foot six and only weighed about 135 pounds. What has happened to us? But anyway, back to Johnson. His boxing style was distinctive, with a more patient approach than was customary, slowly building up over the rounds. He wanted to try for the world heavyweight title held by white boxer Jim Jeffries. Jeffries refused to fight him. This was Jim Crow era of segregation, and he retired undefeated in 1904. So Johnson went to Australia to go Tommy Burns, the new champion, into fighting him. Finally, in 1908, Burns was seduced with a large $30,000 purse to fight Johnson in Sydney. Declared the winner of the World Heavyweight Championship, he was persona non grata in Australia. And as he found on his return to America, even fellow blacks disapproved as his behavior both in and out of the ring had raised racial tension. A public outcry arose for a great white hope to defeat Johnson and reclaim the title for white America. And many whites believed that Jeffries, despite a five-year retirement, was the true world champion as he retired undefeated and would easily beat the upstart Johnson. Racial tension rose further. The fight was the most anticipated, controversial, and talked about sporting event in a generation. And on Independence Day 1910, in Reno, 
Johnson dominated the ex-champion nearly as one-sided as he had Burns and was declared the winner in the 15th round. Jeffries was humbled. I could never have whipped Johnson at my best, he said. I couldn't have hit him. No, I couldn't have reached him in a thousand years. Now check this out, my friends. A feature-length documentary of the fight was made called The Fight of the Century. It was distributed internationally, and although extremely popular, it was banned in many U.S. states and cities as well as parts of the British Empire for fear it would encourage non-white people to rebel against white authority. Ain't that a bitch? And in 1912, Congress even passed an act forbidding the interstate transfer of all boxing films, which wasn't repealed until 1940. The fight earned Johnson $121,000, but many whites felt humiliated while blacks celebrated what they saw was a racial victory. In more than 500 cities, police and angry white citizens tried to break up these celebrations, leaving more than a dozen men dead and hundreds injured in what were brand race riots. Winning the most covenant sports title in early 1900s, made Johnson an international celebrity sportsman in the modern sense, earning money through endorsement and public appearances as well as his sport. He was contracted to fight Bombardier Billy Wells, the British boxing champ, at Earl's Court in the fall. Johnson thought England a bastion of civilization that would welcome him but the British clergy and newspapers led a campaign to have the prize fight stopped, the objectives being interracial fighting and how British fighting for money rather than fun or honor, Home Secretary Winston Churchill bowed to public pressure when he declared the Johnson-Wells fight illegal and not in the best interest of the nation or empire. But what it was is they couldn't risk a black man beating an English soldier in the heart of the British Empire. An angry Johnson spoke out and said that the British were hypocrites no better than Americans. And that made a lot of people go after him. Chicago prosecutors sought to bring criminal charges against Johnson for his sexual relationships with white women. Johnson had been married to a black woman, but their marriage broke up, sending Johnson into a state of depression. As he said in his autobiography, led me to forswear colored women and to determine that my lot henceforth would only cast white women. And he flaunted these white women on his arm around the country. Three particular, a Brooklyn socialite named Etta Durie, a divorced wife of Charles Durie, the first American gasoline-powered car manufacturer, whom he met at a car race, and two prostitutes, Haiti McClay and Belle Schreiber, were all referred to as Mrs. 
Jack Johnson by the champion in public, and sometimes he made simultaneously relationships with them. Etta was by far the most beautiful, educated, and refined of the three, and the heavyweight champion married her in 1911. An incensed Georgia congressman tried to get a constitutional amendment banning racial intermarriage passed. Etta's family ostracized her as did most white people, and her husband's black employees at the Café de Champion, his Chicago nightclub where she lived. Depressive by nature, this made her ill, compounded by Johnson's continuous infidelities, and she committed suicide just over a year later. The news was vindication for the vast majority of Americans who believe miscegenation was wrong. Any sympathy for Johnson after Etta's death evaporated in a couple of weeks when he was seen around Chicago with the 18-year-old white prostitute, Lucille Cameron. Chicago was outraged, and the authorities went all out to get him. First, Lucille's mother claimed Johnson held her daughter against her will. Then Chicago authorities shut down his popular club by rescinding his liquor license, citing Johnson's lowly moral character. Now, the abduction charge was dropped, but he was again arrested in October 1912 for violating the Mann Act, or White Slave Traffic Act, with Lucille. The act prohibited white slavery and the interstate transport of females for immoral purposes, but its vague immorality definition was used to criminalize forms of consensual sexual behavior. But the case fell apart when she refused to testify. Less than a month later, he was similarly charged, this time centered on him sending $75 to his former lover, Belle Schreiber, who traveled from Pittsburgh to Chicago and had consensual sex with him in a hotel room. Schreiber used the $75 to buy train tickets for herself, her pregnant sister, and her mother. When a madam in Pittsburgh threw Schreiber out on the streets after it was revealed she had a past relationship with Johnson, she asked him for money, which she used to establish a Chicago brothel. And because of that, Johnson got an 11-count indictment. Johnson then turned around and married Lucille Cameron in December 1912, less than three months after Etta's death. Two Southern ministers recommended that Johnson be lynched rather than prosecuted. At the trial, he admitted giving Bell the $75, but denied knowing it had been used to establish a brothel. And the court dismissed four counts. But in June 1913, an all-white jury found him guilty on the remaining indictments, sentencing to a year and a day in prison. Johnson fled the country, with Lucille possibly thinking his life was in danger. His appeal went forward despite his absence, finding no evidence that he aided and abetted Bell's confession as a prostitute, but upheld 
that he paid her to cross state lines for the purpose of sex. The transportation of a white woman across state lines for immoral purposes. Canada, they journeyed to France and then in August 1913 to England for some exhibition fights at theaters. They were canceled when Variety Artists Federation, who saw him as an escaped convict who'd already served time in prison and no better than a white slaver, threatened participating theaters with their licenses. He still appeared, but in the auditorium, he put on boxing exhibitions, but wrenched his back in a car accident in a London taxi. He returned to France, where there was no legal segregation of races, and where Johnson quickly became the darling of Parisian fight fans and the artistic avant-garde. He set up fights and conducted personal appearances to establish his celebrity in Europe, earn money, and irritate America. In November 1913, the International Boxing Union declared the world heavyweight title held by Jack Johnson to be vacant. Johnson fought Jim Johnson, no relation, for the heavyweight title in Paris in December 1913 and won but fractured his arm in a fight that was more like an exhibition match. It was notable as the first time in history that two blacks had fought for the world heavyweight title. Johnson approached the U.S. government in the spring of 1920 and agreed to surrender. From the files, he said to have been truly sorry that he originally fled. On July 20th, he stepped across the border at Tijuana into U.S. custody. Serving eight months in Leavenworth Prison, he became the physical director of the inmates, supervising track meets, baseball games, and fight training. While behind bars, he continued to track his business interests, including a Harlem nightclub called Club Deluxe, and one of his releases was met at a prison gate by a marching band and hordes of friends. By 1921, Johnson had ended his exile, served his time, and began a new series of theatrical engagements and personal appearances. He was forced to sell his New York club to a Chicago mobster in 1923, who renamed it the Cotton Club. He fought occasionally and performed in vaudeville and carnival acts, even appearing with a trained fleet act. Run-ins with the law were confined to driving offenses. Once given a $50 on the spot fine for speeding, he gave the officer a $100 bill, telling him to keep the change as he'd be breaking the speed limit on the way back. Five times cars rolled on top of Johnson. Five times he survived. The sixth time, June the 10th, 1946, he was less lucky. After racing angrily from a diner that refused to serve him, Johnson, now aged 68, lost control of his car, hit a light pole, and overturned on Highway 1, North Carolina. He was taken to the closest black hospital, St. Agnes Hospital in Raleigh, where he died three hours later. 
He was buried next to Etta DeRee Johnson at Graceland Cemetery in Chicago. In an unmarked grave, which subsequently was given a headstone just saying Johnson. Not one boxer nor any floral tribute from colleagues was at his funeral. There you have it, my friends. Jack Johnson, the first black heavyweight champion of the world. What do you think about this man? Yes, he was flamboyant and flashy, and drove around in expensive cars, but was he a sellout? I myself think the man did a lot for our race. He put pride into the boxing ring, and he opened the doors for many other black boxers to follow. So rest in peace, Jack Johnson, because we know the real story. And we know how Jim Crow and the rest of America treated you for being who you were. Well, my friends, that music tells me it is once more that time. I've got to get out of here. But before I go, I must leave you this message. There's a lot of mess going on today about Deion Sanders and Kyrie Irving. And a lot of people are voicing their opinion. But I just want to say this. To these athletes thinking we are listening to them, if I wanted advice from someone who chases a ball, I'd ask my dog. Until next time, my friends, have a good day. And it has been my honor.